Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 86, Immigration in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This weekend, Jake and I are getting ready for our 4th of July trip to San Francisco and Yosemite National Park. We hope to make a stop in Chinese Camp, a small town near the entrance to Yosemite. It was founded in 1849 as a mining camp, where some of the very first Chinese-American laborers lived while they worked in the gold fields. In anticipation of that experience, and in reaction to the administration's persecution of migrant families arriving on our southern border, we're bringing you three stories from our archives about Boston's history with immigration. But before we hear these stories, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For our featured historic site, we have a museum in Watertown dedicated to preserving the history of one group's immigrant experience in the Boston area. Located just outside Watertown Square, Smithsonian Magazine describes the Armenian Museum of America's mission as to present and preserve the culture, history, art, and contributions of the Armenian people to Americans and Armenians alike. Since its inception, the museum's collection has grown to over 27,000 books and 20,000 artifacts, making it perhaps the largest and most diverse holding of Armenian cultural artifacts outside of Armenia. As a repository for heirlooms, the collection now represents a major resource not only for Armenian studies research, but as well for preservation and illustration of the Armenian heritage. A half-century after the Armenian people faced genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Empire, Armenian Americans in Watertown and Belmont began collecting artifacts of life in Armenia, the genocide, and subsequent life in America. The museum's website recounts, It all began in a church parish house in Belmont, Massachusetts in 1971, when a group of Armenian educators, professionals, and business leaders began collecting Armenian books and artifacts. The collection grew steadily, and in 1985, the Armenian Museum of America opened its doors to the public for the first time. Today, the museum's housed in a shimmering glass-and-steel building right outside Watertown Square. It's open Thursday through Sunday from noon to 6 p.m. Admission is $7 for adults and $3 for students and seniors. It's located just steps from the 59, 70, and 71 bus, and there's metered parking available behind the adjacent CVS. We'll have a link to their website for more information in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a walking tour offered by the Massachusetts Historical Society this coming Saturday, June 30th. This is a little bit of a departure for MHS. We feature a lot of their author talks, exploration of items from their archives, and other great events, but they're almost always something held in-house at the Historical Society. Getting out and leading a walking tour is much less common. This particular tour is meant to retrace the footsteps of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the years he called Boston home. Here's how MHS describes the event. As a doctoral student at Boston University's School of Theology, Martin Luther King Jr. spent some of his formative years walking the streets of Boston and living in the South End. His life in Boston was King's first immersive experience outside of the segregated South, and while he experienced the de facto racism of the North, he also enjoyed the acceptance of the BU and Boston area communities. This tour will guide visitors through areas of Boston where King lived and socialized, where he met and courted Coretta Scott, 
and where he returned later at the height of the civil rights movement to deliver powerful speeches on the struggle for racial and economic equality. The tour begins at 3 p.m. and lasts about 90 minutes. There's a $10 fee for anyone who's not a Historical Society member, and registration is required. We'll have a link to find out more and to register in this week's show notes. Now it's time for this week's main topic. We've had plenty of recent opportunities to hear President Trump's fear-mongering hysteria over undocumented migrants and asylum seekers. In Texas alone, within the last seven years, more than a quarter of a million criminal aliens have been arrested and charged with over 600,000 criminal offenses. You don't hear that. The historically-minded observer immediately notices the parallels between today's fear of Middle Eastern and Central American migrants and past fears of other immigrant groups. Nativists cite terrorism, crime, and an unfamiliar, possibly dangerous religion as reasons to bar immigrants from entering this country. Our ancestors worried about all these issues, as we'll hear today. In the 1920s, Italian immigrants faced prejudice because of widespread beliefs that they were prone to terrorism. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Chinese Americans were thought to be criminals and were both banned from entering this country and deported en masse. And in the early to mid-19th century, Irish Americans were hated and feared because of their unfamiliar, possibly un-American, Catholic religion. We'll examine each of these past immigration fears with clips from classic episodes. First up is the Italian-American experience. President Trump uses fear of terrorism to drum up support for his border wall and as a justification for the hateful Muslim ban that's been partially upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. I didn't see Swedish people knocking down the World Trade Center. They're not coming out of Sweden that want to kill us. I don't notice Swedish people knocking down the World Trade Center. We have great people in the Muslim population, but something's happening. We are not exactly loved by many Muslims. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? In 1920, these were the same things Americans said about Italian immigrants. Last January, we ran an episode about Sacco and Vanzetti, Italian-American immigrants and anarchists. At the time, anarchist terrorist attacks were widely attributed to Italian immigrants, and anti-Italian sentiments ran so high that they contributed to the two men's executions for a crime they may not have committed. But let's set the backdrop for this episode with a crash course on immigration waves in Boston. Up until the 1850s, we are a very English-descended, homogenous, Protestant city. The population shifts begin with the Irish in the 1840s. As the potato famine in Ireland just devastates the poor and working class, the Irish immigrated to Boston in such high numbers that in five years they make up almost 50% of the population. Their arrival in the city is a significant factor in the decision to fill in the back bay and create a new, elite neighborhood for the respectable folks who are fleeing the newcomers. And then, as the Irish begin to pick up manual labor on the very same project that was designed to box them in, and work as domestic servants in the resulting neighborhood, they're able to move into the middle class. Between the 1880s and 1920s, the North End in Boston becomes home to a thriving Jewish community, and the South End welcomed immigrants from all over the world. Today, out-of-towners might think of Boston as an Irish city, but we have pockets of immigrants that have built vibrant communities in every neighborhood in the city. 
Now, tying it back to Sacco and Vanzetti, the Italian presidents that we see today is really concentrated in the North End, and that begins to take shape around 1910. So what would you say is the greatest cultural contribution that the Italians made to the North End? Anarchy. By the 1860s, anarchism was well established as a political movement that supports the idea that a hierarchical government and society where a handful of people have authority over the masses is oppressive. Several key leaders to the movement settled in Italy, which was a heavily industrialized country with a lot of fairly educated young people who really had no hope of ever getting a meaningful job and advancing themselves. So they are open to a radical movement, as youth of every generation tend to be. Organized groups spring up around Italy, and between the 1870s and World War II, there are a number of uprisings. The movement is really on the cusp of a revolution with a very effective underground network, but they just never hit the tipping point before the country is engulfed in a war. But here in America, we're relatively free from that conflict and facing similar conditions in our cities and right here in Boston. The anarchist movement came to America and took hold in pockets across the country. Boston was no different than any other city or community. Anarchism was not welcome. And stereotyping led to the misconception that all Italians were anarchists. Kind of like the belief today that all Muslims are jihadists or that all Christians are neo-Nazis. Yes. And similarly, lots of things are then blamed on Italian anarchists. As an example... Listeners will recall from episode three, The Great Molasses Flood, that anarchists were initially named as the cause of the tank's explosion. In the 1920s, Nicolas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti became the face of the movement. The two men were arrested and tried for an armed robbery and the murder of two men at the Slater Morrill Shoe Factory in Braintree, just south of the city. The crime took place at 3 p.m. on the afternoon of April 15, 1920. As the garden paymaster were transporting payroll by foot from the company's office building to the factory, they were shot and robbed by two men with pistols. As the murder was being committed, a car containing several other men drew up to the spot. The murderers threw the boxes of money into the car, jumped in, and were driven away. The car was discovered in a patch of woods two days later. All we initially hear from the eyewitnesses is that the men looked Italian. To explain how Sacco and Vanzetti were picked up for this crime is pretty complicated, and I think it just points to how shoddy the evidence was. At the time of this murder, police were already investigating a similar crime in Bridgewater, an armed robbery by men assisted by a getaway car. Again, an eyewitness believed them to be Italian, but their ethnicity was just a guess. The car drove off towards Cochesset, so the police narrowed the search to look for any Italian men who lived in Cochesset and owned a car. Sacco and Vanzetti had the misfortune of being acquainted with such a man, whose car was in the shop at the time, and they accompanied him to pick it up. A classic case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. During the arrest, the owner of the car escaped, and a fourth man was arrested, but eventually cleared. Initially, Sacco and Vanzetti are looked at for both crimes. Sacco was cleared for the Bridgewater crime because he could show that he was at work, but Vanzetti was self-employed as a fish peddler. And 
I just want to point out here that Sako worked at another shoe factory and Vanzetti was a fish peddler, as you mentioned. And this is a pretty sophisticated crime for two random guys. The head of the state police always maintained that this was a professional job. The Sacco and Vanzetti Defense Committee, at the urging of anarchist leader Carlo Tresca, hired Fred H. Moore, a lawyer from California. He was experienced at representing defendants in politically charged cases, but he knew nothing about the Massachusetts legal system and the judge and prosecutor that he'd be up against. He was also visually marked as an outsider by his long hair. I picture it as something similar to Joe Pesci walking into a courtroom in a leather jacket and My Cousin Vinny. Moore knew that his best hope was not proving innocence to a jury that had already made up their minds. It was to create a political trial with national attention. In the year leading up to the start of the trial, Moore drummed up awareness by continually blasting out messaging that two innocent men were being framed for their beliefs and would be facing a biased judge. He also brought class into the mix, positioning Sacco and Vanzetti as working-class heroes who could draw sympathy from the fellow blue-collar workers. The strategy proved to be somewhat effective. The New England Civil Liberties Union sent out a letter declaring the evidence unsubstantial and that they were victims of prejudice due to their status as foreigners and influential radicals. The trial opened in Dedham on May 31, 1921, and was presided over by Judge Webster Thayer. To summarize a lot of evidence, the case against the two was built on eyewitness testimony placing them at the scene of the crime. Ballistics experts that attempted to prove that one of the bullets was fired from Sacco's gun, and lies that were told at the time of their arrest. And I find the testimony about Sacco and Vanzetti's whereabouts during the crime to just be too conflicting to draw a conclusion. For every witness swearing to identify them as the shooters, you have a defense witness placing them elsewhere. However, the defense witnesses were predominantly friends of the two men or linked to anarchist groups. Most of the prosecution witnesses who ID the defendants are shaky. You have a witness who saw the getaway car driving by through a factory window at least 30 feet away and for no more than a few seconds. And yet a year later, this person claims to make a positive identification. You have another witness who, a month after the murders, tells the police that Sacco looks like one of the shooters and now a year later is able to make an identification with 100% certainty. The witnesses are just not credible, especially when compared to others who were at the crime scene who say that they just could not ID men who they only had a fleeting glimpse of and who were previously unknown. Think about the stranger who got on the train in front of you yesterday. Can you pick that person out of a lineup today? Probably not. Ultimately, while prosecution witnesses identified Sacco as one of the two gunmen, No witness ever claimed to have seen Vanzetti during the actual shooting. There's also the question of the contradictory statements the two men made in the days following their arrest, some of which we know to be lies. There's the obvious issue that they were not strong English speakers, but also it may very well be that they were up to something else that day. They may have been distributing or disposing of anarchist literature, They may have even been planning another crime. Certainly, contradictory statements would cause a jury to question the defendant's innocence, but it is circumstantial. 
The most reliable evidence was the ballistics testimony on a bullet found in one of the bodies. The bullet indisputably was fired from a Colt automatic. Sacco was arrested carrying a Colt automatic. The defense had experts who gave counter-testimony, but the fact is that in the 1960s, tests at the Massachusetts police lab indicated that the bullet was fired from Sacco's gun. Or rather, the gun Sacco had on him at the time of his arrest. That's pretty strong evidence, but for the time and the place, and especially for those active in an anarchist cell, it wasn't uncommon to be sharing and trading guns. Lastly, and perhaps most impactful of all, is the drama surrounding these two men and the questioning of their beliefs. They did not forsake their values, and they used this platform to criticize capitalism. I just want to share one quote of Sacco's from the transcript, given when the prosecutor asked what he meant when he said that he loved a free country. You can hear both conviction and confusion in his answer. I teach over here men who is with me. I could see the best men, intelligent, education. They've been arrested and sent to prison and died in prison for years and years without them getting out. And Debs, one of the great men in his country, he is in prison, still away in prison because he is a socialist. He wanted the laboring class to have better conditions and better living, more education. Give a push his son if he would have a chance someday. But they put him in prison. Why? Because the capitalist class, they don't want our child to go to high school or to college or Harvard College. There would be no chance. There would not be no... They don't want the working class educationed. They want the working class low all the times, be underfoot and not up with the head. So sometimes you see the Rockefellers, Morgans, they give 50, I mean, they give $500,000 to Harvard College. They won't get the poor class. They won't get no chance to go to Harvard College. I like men to get everything that nature will give best. So that is why I love people who labor and work and see better conditions every day develop. Makes no more war. We no want to fight by the gun, and we don't want to destroy young men. The war is not like Abraham Lincoln's and Abe Jefferson, to fight for a free country, for the better education, to give a chance to any other peoples. They are war for business. Millions of dollars come on the side. I want to destroy those guns. That is why I love the socialists. That is why I like people who want education and living, building, who is good, Boom. just as much as they could. That is all. The trial ran from May 31st to July 14th. The jury only deliberated for five and a half hours before finding the both men guilty. Regarding Judge Thayer's bias throughout the trial, reporters heard Judge Thayer during a lunch recess say, I'll show them that no long-haired anarchist from California can run this court. And also, you wait till I give my charge to the jury. I'll show them. Post-trial, Judge Thayer denied five separate motions, each requesting a new trial based on new or evolving evidence. The motions are followed by an appeal to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, Celestino Medeiros, an ex-convict awaiting trial for murder, confessed to committing the murders that Sacco and Vanzetti had been convicted for. Once Medeiros was convicted, the police investigated the details and began to look at the Morelli gang based in Providence. Police developed a new theory of the crime based on the gang's history of shoe factory robberies and connections to a car like the one used in Braintree. Additionally, gang leader Joe Morelli bore a striking resemblance to Sacco. 
The defense filed a motion for a new trial based on the Medeiros confession, which Thayer heard in September 1926. Along with their Medeiros-Morelli theory of the crime, the defense charged that the U.S. Justice Department was aiding the prosecution by withholding information obtained in its own investigation of the case. Attorney William Thompson argued, A government which has come to value its own secrets more than it does the lives of its citizens has become a tyranny, whether you call it a republic, a monarchy, or anything else. Judge Thayer denied this motion for a new trial on October 23, 1926, causing the Boston Herald to reverse its long-standing position and call for a new trial. The Supreme Judicial Court again denied an appeal. With the execution date drawing near, in May of 1927, the governor responded to increasing pressure by convening a three-man committee to determine if the trial had been fair. And after a several-week review, the committee advised the governor not to open up the trial again. After seven years, the execution took place early in the morning of August 22, 1927, at the state prison in Charlestown. A crowd of over 20,000 protesters had gathered on Boston Common the night before, waiting for word of their fate. Sacco went to the death chamber first, shouting, Farewell, mother, at the last minute. Vanzetti then followed, shaking hands with the guards and thanking them for treating him humanely. His final words were, I want to forgive these people for what they are now doing to me. As word spread around the world, there were violent protests in England, France, Holland, Switzerland, and Germany. There were peaceful protests in Japan and South Africa, and a series of general strikes in South America. Back in Boston, the bodies were viewed publicly for two days with thousands of mourners. On August 28th, the funeral procession wound its way from the North End to Forest Hill Cemetery in Jamaica Plain. Thousands of people marched, and perhaps as many as 200,000 came out to watch. The Boston Globe called it one of the most tremendous funerals of modern times. And while the story does not end well, there isn't a positive impact through judicial reform. Since 1939, the SJC has been required to review all death penalty cases, to consider the entire case record, and affirm or overturn the verdict on the law and on the evidence, or for any other reason that justice may require. And though it took time to pass, this change was a direct result of the Sacco and Vanzetti trial and the SJC's inability to grant an appeal, thus giving one judge the ability to sentence death with no review. Fifty years later, Governor Dukakis declared August 23, 1977 as Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti Memorial Day. His proclamation, issued in English and Italian, stated that Sacco and Vanzetti had been unfairly tried and convicted, and that any disgrace should be forever removed from their names. He did not pardon them, so as not to imply that they were guilty. I'd like to close with a statement Vanzetti made to a reporter while in prison. If it had not been for these things, I might have lived out my life talking at street corners to scorning men. I might have died, unmarked, unknown, a failure. Now, we are not a failure. This is our career and our triumph. 
Never in our full life could we hope to do such work for tolerance, for justice, for man's understanding of man, as now we do by accident. Our words, our lives, our pains, nothing. The taking of our lives, lives of a good shoemaker and a poor fish peddler, all. The last moment belongs to us. That agony is our triumph. President Trump tells the nation that we should fear immigration because members of MS-13 are coming in and they're animals. We have people coming into the country or trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. MS-13, in 2018, holds a similar place of fear in America's imagination to the Chinese-American Tongs in the first decade of the 20th century. Chinese-Americans were the first group to face any form of restriction on immigration to the U.S., with repeated federal laws banning their entry. Nativists stoked fears by exaggerating the crimes committed by Tongs, organizations that walked a fine line between social club and organized crime syndicate. Murders in Boston's Chinatown in 1903 and 1907 led to a brutal crackdown on immigrants in 1907 that caused an international incident. The Tongs and the Great Chinatown Raid were the subject of an episode we ran last October. On a warm summer evening in 1907, businesses were closing up shop for the day. In the narrow streets and alleyways of Boston's Chinatown, people leaned in doorways smoking or gathered on stoops to chat. In the tiny T-shaped alley called Oxford Street, a group of men quietly took their prearranged positions and waited for a signal. Against the backdrop of this ordinary streetscape, somebody lit a string of firecrackers. This wasn't entirely unheard of in Chinatown, but these firecrackers were a signal. As the firecrackers went off, the group loitering on Oxford Street pulled out pistols and began firing indiscriminately into the crowd of people mingling in the evening air. Panic immediately followed, with people diving for cover, fleeing into stores, or running for safety on Harrison Street. Within seconds, three men were killed, and seven more fell wounded. The shooters immediately fled, blending into the frightened crowd that was racing away from the scene. As every available Boston police unit converged on Chinatown, a rumor began to spread. It said that the shooters were paid thugs, hatchet men organized by the Hip Sing Tong to demonstrate why businesses should be paying protection money to the Tong. While ambulances were still on the scene and undertakers' wagons were collecting the bodies, the police were already going door-to-door in Chinatown. They kicked in doors, searching for anyone who might be a witness or a suspect with a connection to the Hip Sing Tong. Throughout Chinatown, people feared that they were about to witness a repeat of the traumatic police raids that had followed an earlier shooting in 1903. Our story begins long before the bullets began to fly on that August evening. Boston's Chinatown neighborhood has its roots in the first large-scale wave of Chinese Americans to settle in Boston in 1874. They were part of a group of low-wage workers who had been brought from San Francisco to North Adams to work as scabs during a garment workers' strike in 1870. After the strike was over, the immigrant workers could no longer count on finding work in North Adams, so many of them came to Boston. Here, they found employment in the city's garment district and started a community centered around the corner of Harrison and Beach that was at first known as Boston's Chinese Colony. 
The population grew quickly in the 1870s as more Chinese Americans moved to Boston to seek employment. The first Chinese restaurant, Hong Far Lo, opened in 1875. Also during the 1870s, laundries became an increasingly important industry for Chinese immigrants, as many other types of businesses began to discriminate against them. Soon, one in every four Chinese American men would be employed in the laundry business. As Chinese American immigrants moved across the nation from west to east, anti-Chinese sentiment and discrimination followed close behind. Chinese immigration to the west coast had ramped up quickly during the California gold rush of the 1850s, and demand for Chinese American laborers remained high during the railroad boom of the 1860s. However, after the Civil War, the country settled into an economic recession. During these hard times, populist politicians scapegoated these immigrants as the cause of low wages among white American workers. Sounds pretty familiar. Finally, in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. While immigration from other nations would be essentially unregulated until the 1920s, this new law enacted a 10-year prohibition on anyone from China who might be employed as a laborer moving to the U.S. In practice, it was almost impossible to prove one's employment status, so immigration was frozen. The Chinese-American community in Boston at that time was made up overwhelmingly of young male workers, who then faced a devastating choice. Leave the U.S. and probably never be allowed to return to their homes and jobs here, or stay and risk never seeing their families again. Over the next several years, amendments tightened the law, and then in 1892 the Geary Act renewed and extended it for another ten years. Not only was immigration prohibited under the Geary Act, but anyone of Chinese descent in the U.S. was required to carry identification papers at all times. Their right of habeas corpus was revoked, and two white witnesses were required to swear to their immigration status if there was any dispute. Before it expired in 1902, the Geary Act would be indefinitely renewed. In the 1930s, elements of the law were relaxed to allow wives and families of Chinese Americans already in the U.S. to join them, and the law was allowed to expire in 1943, while the Republic of China was fighting as a valuable ally against the Japanese Empire in the Pacific Theater. Another murder in Boston's Chinatown provided the nominal excuse for a combined raid by Boston police and the U.S. Immigration Bureau in 1903. The raid, which indiscriminately scooped up anyone of Chinese descent, regardless of their immigration status, became so notorious that it led to a nationwide boycott of American-made goods in China for the next two years. Judge William Emmons had just been named Boston Police Commissioner, and he vowed to crack down on the gang violence, gambling, and opium dens that he claimed had taken over the city's Chinatown. On October 2nd, 1903, Wang Yak Chong was ambushed and killed by two men in Chinatown in an attack that wounded two others. Wang, who owned a business in Roslindale, was reported to be a member of the Hip Sing Tong. His two assailants, Wang Ching and Charlie Chin, were said to belong to the rival An Liang Tong. Tongs were organizations that hovered somewhere between secret societies and benevolent associations. They originated in mainland China and found particularly fertile soil in the eastern United States. As Chinese Americans moved further from the West Coast and the large immigrant communities there, they found more reasons to rely on the Tongs for support. 
Unfortunately, the Tongs were also far from their traditional power bases in China, and in Boston and New York, they began operating as organized crime syndicates. The Tongs ran gambling and opium dens, and in a situation where the Chinese Exclusion Act prevented most ethnically Chinese women from coming to the United States, they operated successful prostitution rings. It was against this background that Wang's murder played out. One early news report said that he was planning to sell his business and renounce the Hipsing Tong, and that he was killed out of fear that he would betray the Tong's secrets. Most news reports, though, say that he was at the center of a dispute over gambling debts between the Hipsings and the Anliang Tong. The assassins, Wang Ching and Charlie Chin, were armed with Kruner Colt and Ira Johnson revolvers. When he was arrested, Wang Ching was found to be wearing elaborate body armor concealed beneath his clothes. It was made up of many small pieces of sheet steel, about two inches square and a sixteenth of an inch thick, joined by little bands of copper wire. One of the two men was found with an elaborate, traditional Chinese hunting axe. This fed White Boston's fear of Chinese-American gangsters, as it was associated with Tong assassins, hence the term hatchet men. This was exactly the pretext that the Boston Police Department had been looking for. As Captain Lawrence Kane, the department's commander in Chinatown, said, It is the first time that such a bloody feud is broken out among the Chinese in Boston. We must check it. That is the reason we have had to resort to such extreme measures. The community must be protected from such high-handed acts. We intend to take every precaution, even if innocent men are brought to the station. Wang Yak Chong's funeral was held on October 11th, and soon after he was buried at Mount Hope Cemetery, the police began breaking down doors in Chinatown. Because the two hatchetmen were rumored to belong to the Onliang Tong, the raids tended to target them. However, doubt is cast on this focus on the Onliangs, and indeed their role in the murder itself, by persistent rumors that Police Commissioner Emmons had struck a deal with the Hip Sing Tong. In a story reminiscent of law enforcement's protection deal with Whitey Bulger's Winter Hill Gang nearly a century later, author Alan Rogers explains the situation. In fact, Emmons apparently made a corrupt bargain with the Hip Sing Tong. In exchange for information about illegal activities conducted by the On Leong Tong, the Boston police left Hip Sing alone. Throughout the summer and fall of 1903, for example, the police arrested scores of On Leong Tong members for gambling, but not a single member of Hip Sing. This tactic led directly to the violence. While the raids may have been nominally targeted at On Leong, in reality they became a generalized roundup of Chinese Americans. The BPD and immigration authorities fanned out through the neighborhood and swept up hundreds of ethnically Chinese Bostonians, regardless of any complicity in the shootings, Tong affiliation, immigration status, or possession of the required documentation. George Billings, immigration commissioner for the Port of Boston, made it clear that the raids were deliberately indiscriminate. We have had it in our mind for a long time to do something of this sort. We are satisfied that there are many unregistered Chinese in the city and in other places in New England. It required something like the murder of Wong, however, to give us the proper excuse for taking action. I think we have done our job pretty thoroughly tonight. I have no doubt that many of the Chinese we took tonight have their papers. They should have had them in their possession. Those who left them in their homes will have an opportunity tomorrow to produce them. 
If they have not got their papers, they will be deported. The Boston Herald describes the raids in the typically racist language of the day. The officers dragged the frightened Chinamen out from under beds, from behind boxes and doors, and from all conceivable places of concealment. They were all driven down the winding stairways to the big marble hallway at the street entrance and huddled together like panting sheep. The jabbering was deafening and bewildering. In the Atlantic, in 1906, former Secretary of State John W. Foster used more measured tones to recall a notorious case which occurred not on the sandlots of California, nor under the auspices of labor agitators, but in the enlightened city of Boston and under the conduct of federal officials. The police and immigration officials fell upon their victims without giving a word of warning. The clubs, restaurants, other public places where the Chinese congregated, and private houses were surrounded. Every avenue of escape was blocked. To those seized, no warrant for arrest or other paper was read or shown. Every Chinese who did not at once produce his certificate of residence was taken in charge, and the unfortunate ones were rushed off to the federal building without further ceremony. There was no respect of persons with the officials. They treated merchants and laborers alike. In many cases, no demand was made for certificates. The captives were dragged off to imprisonment, and in some instances, the demand was not made till late at night or the next morning when the certificates were in the possession of the victims at the time of their seizure. By morning, 234 men were being held in custody. 122 were released within 24 hours, after producing the documents required under the Geary Act. 49 were released on bail in the first few days, and 11 were held in jail for many days until they could produce their documentation. Some of these men were residents from the suburbs who had been in town for the day, and had to wait for friends or trusted acquaintances to find and produce their documents. Among those who were held the longest were at least two American citizens of Chinese descent. On October 16th, several hundred Bostonians gathered to protest at Faneuil Hall. William Lloyd Garrison Jr., son of the famous abolitionist, gave the first address. We are gathered to protest against the recent flagrant outrage upon ourselves and upon the fair fame of the city. It is a menace to constitutional government. A few Orientals serve today as a pretext for this encroachment of a power hostile to democratic institutions. Tomorrow the victims may be Negroes or Jews. The preliminary excuse for the brutality in Chinatown was the fact of a single and exceptional murder of one Chinaman by another, a crime almost of daily occurrence in other parts of the city among natives and foreigners. The pretense of the police cloaked a purpose to round up the Chinese colony and capture the pitiful number who were unable to produce on the instant their certificates. The chattel tag which the Great Republic, founded by immigrants from oppression, exacts of these later refugees. Imagine the tables turned, and American citizens in China corralled and dragged into confinement upon suspicion. The apathetic deadness of Boston would burst into volcanic wrath, and the Navy Yard bristle with activity. Or suppose it dissentness upon the Italian quarter were planned by the police, inspired by federal authority. Even let the Japanese be the intended victims. Strenuous and inflated as is our new world power, the United States would shrink from the attempt. The eagle seeks a helpless quarry. Despite the protest, 50 Chinese Americans were deported. 
It remains unclear whether all, or indeed any of them, were residing in the U.S. without registering themselves with the authorities. Another 150 would leave the city by train before the end of October of 1903. It was the largest exodus of Chinese Americans from the area at any one time up to that point, and it was sparked by the raid and the ensuing insecurity ethnically Chinese people felt in Boston afterwards. The population of Boston's Chinatown had been somewhere around 600 before the raids. Reducing that number by a third was seen as a great success by the officials, who were dead set on ridding the city and nation of Chinese immigrants. One of the Chinese Americans who left Boston after the raids was Feng Shuia Wai. He moved to the Philippines and then later went back to China. His experiences with the Boston raid in particular, and life under the Chinese Exclusion Act in general, had radicalized Fang. When he arrived back in China, he published a book describing and denouncing the discrimination Chinese immigrants faced in America. In May 1905, the Shanghai Chamber of Commerce began advocating for a boycott of American-made goods in protest of the treatment of Chinese Americans. On July 16th, Feng Shuawai committed suicide in front of the American consulate in Shanghai. Days later, the boycott formally began, with Feng seen as a martyr to the boycott and the rising spirit of Chinese nationalism it encouraged. His memorial service stretched over three days, attracting thousands of mourners and orators who promoted the boycott. In response to the boycott, President Theodore Roosevelt would say, We cannot expect China to do us justice unless we do China justice. The chief cause in bringing about the boycott of our goods in China was undoubtedly our attitude toward the Chinese who come to this country. Our laws and treaties should be so framed as to guarantee to all Chinamen, save for the exception of the coolie class, the same right of entry to this country and the same treatment while here, as is guaranteed to citizens of any other nation. By executive action, I am as rapidly as possible putting a stop to the abuses which have grown up during many years in the administration of this exclusion law. In the wake of the raids, Chinatown was bent, but not broken. Even the Tongs remained in Boston, and retained enough power to spark the massacre on Oxford Street in August of 1907. By the morning after the shooting, police had five members of the Hip Sing Tong in custody and the next day they arrested five more. Among the latter arrest was a businessman named Wary Charles. He was suspected of being a high-level Hipsing leader and having orchestrated the attack on the On Liang Tong as retaliation for the 1903 killing of Wang Yak Chong. When the trial started, nine of the defendants were charged with first-degree murder, and Wary Charles was charged as an accessory before the fact. If they were convicted, all would be subject to the death penalty. The government called almost 90 witnesses, almost all of whom testified with the help of interpreters. The star witness was Wabber Shoi Poi, who claimed to be a member of the Hipsing Tong's ruling council. He said he had been in the room when Worry Charles proposed an attack on the Ong Liangs. One witness testified that Charles said that he would have to do some killing and make the Chinese businessmen so afraid that all of them would join our society, and laid out how he would bring in hatchetmen from New York and pay them and local assassins out of his pocket. The defense put Charles on the stand, 
He flatly denied having any part in proposing the shooting or paying any of the assailants. He then told his life story, framed as a rags-to-riches odyssey. He recounted how he had been born in China in 1857, then moved to the U.S. at age 11, settling first in San Francisco, where he worked for relatives, before moving to New Orleans and finally Omaha. There he opened his first business with money he had saved. In 1880, he married a white woman he had met in Sunday school, and they had a son. Later, he moved to New York City and opened a laundry. He claimed that he'd been forced to move to Boston after being an informant for the police during a crackdown on gambling in New York's Chinatown. After only two hours of deliberation, the jury found all ten men guilty, and they were sentenced to death. The prospect of a mass execution of ten men shocked Boston and lent support to the anti-death penalty movement that was enjoying some success at the time. Senator James H. Vahey said that if the execution proceeded, it will seem very much like leading animals to the slaughter. The first three of the convicted men were executed in the electric chair at Charlestown State Prison on October 12, 1909. Three more were executed three days later, while Wary Charles and the remaining prisoners were moved to death row in Charlestown. While Charles waited on death row, his wife Mary and their son Warren, who was now a Spanish-American war veteran and a New York police officer, lobbied for clemency. Governor Eben Draper would convene the governor's council to consider the request. During the ensuing hearings, many of the witnesses who had testified at the trial changed their stories. In the end, it was not enough to clear Wary Charles' name, but the governor saw fit to commute his sentence to life in prison. He would die in 1915. Today, Chinatown's primary threat isn't a crackdown by racist police agencies, but rather the march of gentrification that threatens to price the descendants of early Chinatown residents out of the neighborhood. However, other Boston neighborhoods have not been so lucky. Just two weeks ago, East Boston was the site of a massive, politically motivated raid by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. While they claimed that they were trying to serve warrants on notorious violent criminals, they swept up undocumented immigrants regardless of any criminal history. The agency's gloating press release after the raid made it clear that it was using the crackdown as a retribution against Boston's status as a sanctuary city. Operation Safe City focused on cities and regions where ICE deportation officers are denied access to jails and prisons to interview suspected immigration violators or jurisdictions where ICE detainers are not honored. Sanctuary jurisdictions that do not honor detainers or allow us access to jails and prisons are shielding criminal aliens from immigration enforcement and creating a magnet for illegal immigration. As a result, ICE is forced to dedicate more resources to conduct at-large arrests in these communities. Another notorious case in the enlightened city of Boston and under the conduct of federal officials where deliberately indiscriminate at-large raids target communities for intimidation. During the mid-19th century, famine swept Ireland, and a huge proportion of the Irish population immigrated to the U.S. and Canada. The potato famine began in earnest in 1845, and by the 1850 census, Irish Americans made up about 60,000 of Boston's 130,000 residents. That sudden wave of immigration triggered an ugly backlash with no Irish need apply signs in business windows and calls by the Know Nothing Party to ban Irish immigrants. 
Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. That antipathy toward the Irish went back to the earliest days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and was largely due to the frightening unfamiliarity of the Catholic religion that Irish Americans brought with them. That tension came to a head in the Ursuline Convent Riot of 1834, which we talked about in January of last year. From where we sit in Boston in 2017, it's hard to imagine what Boston was like prior to 1845. We're such an Irish-identified city today. Every bar is an Irish pub. We have shamrocks on our Red Sox hats. But that Irish identity is something that started rather late in Boston history, after the potato famine in Ireland in 1845. Up until that point, Boston had been a very homogenous society. It was a city that shared a strong Yankee identity, one that was English-descended, and one that was almost universally Protestant. When Irish immigration began in earnest in 1845, it was like a population bomb in Boston. By the time of the 1850 census, first and second generation Irish American immigrants made up about 60,000 of about 130,000 total Boston residents. That's almost half the population in the first five years. But before large-scale immigration began, Irish Americans were a tiny sliver of the Boston area population. And those that were here were looked at by Yankees with a lot of distrust and disdain. Remember that most Irish American immigrants at that time were Roman Catholic, and New England, and Boston in particular, had a deep-seated bias against Catholics. A deep-seated bias against somebody who doesn't share the same religion as you. This sounds very familiar. You can hear more about the roots of New England's anti-Catholic bias in our show Remember, Remember, the 5th of November, our very first episode at hubhistory.com slash 001. By the time our story takes place, that prejudice went back centuries, back to England, and back to the European wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries. It was only made worse by the English Civil War, which took place in the 1640s, well after Boston was founded. Our story opens at an Ursuline convent near Boston in 1834. The Ursulines are a religious order in the Catholic Church dedicated solely to the education of girls. They were founded in 1535 by Angela Marici, who was later sainted. Originally, she envisioned a group of women who lived amongst the communities they served without any special distinctions like wearing the habit. However, after Marici's death, the church hierarchy was uncomfortable with the idea of women with that amount of power and autonomy. By 1572, the order had agreed to reinvent itself as a cloistered order, living in convents with strict vows. The Ursuline order was the first group of nuns to arrive in North America. The first group set up a school in Quebec in 1639. Then another group came to New Orleans in 1727. Their school in New Orleans is now considered the oldest surviving building in the entire Mississippi Valley. Jake and I were able to visit when we were in Louisiana a few years ago, so we'll post pictures of the altar and some of the statues on the grounds in the show notes for this week's episode. While priests were banned from early Massachusetts on pain of death, Catholicism becomes officially tolerated with the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780. As Boston slowly becomes more hospitable to Catholics, the official diocese is founded in 1808. 
Pretty soon thereafter, an order of Ursuline nuns was established in Boston in 1820. Ironically, it seems that most of their students were Protestant children. According to one source, there were 47 girls enrolled in the Ursuline Secondary School in 1834, only six of whom were Catholic. With so few good options for educating girls at that time, many of the upper-class Protestant families who could afford it sent their daughters to be taught by the Ursulines. Their convent was originally located on Franklin Street at Downtown Crossing, but within a few years, they were getting too successful and the convent was bursting at the seams, and when they relocated, they went outside the city of Boston. It's actually a little bit convoluted to describe where the Ursuline convent ended up moving to. They moved to a place called Mount Benedict in Charlestown. Seems simple enough, right? But that part of Charlestown is now known as East Somerville, after Somerville became an independent town in 1842. And Mount Benedict was known for decades as Plowed Hill. It was the site of skirmishes during the Revolution. At first, it was the no-man's land between British-held Charlestown and the Patriot defenses around Prospect Hill. One night in August 1775, the rebels pushed their lines forward and took over the hill, incorporating it into their defenses. As far as I can tell, the name was only changed to Mount Benedict at the time the Ursulines moved there in 1827. But if you're looking around East Somerville today, don't count on finding Mount Benedict. You'll see St. Benedict Parish Church, you'll see Benedict Street, you'll see Benedict Avenue, but not Mount Benedict. Like Fort Hill in Boston, and like the top 60 feet or so of Beacon Hill for that matter, most of Mount Benedict was cut down in the late 19th century and used to fill in the salt marshes where the Assembly Square Mall is today. So where should you look for evidence of Mount Benedict? Well, we'll post an 1852 map of Somerville in the show notes for this week's episode at hubhistory.com slash 011. You'll see Mount Benedict on the map, and the ruins of the Ursuline Convent are marked. If you compare that to a modern map of Somerville, you can see a triangle made by McGrath Highway, I-93, and Broadway, which is just across the highway from the Assembly Square Home Depot, and that is where the Ursulines built their second convent in 1827. They built a grand campus on the hill they called Mount Benedict. A former student would later describe that, quote, Nearly the whole of Mount Benedict was enclosed for the use of the convent. There was a lodge, a bishop's house, several terraced walks, and grounds tastefully laid out for the recreation of the pupils. No such elegant and imposing building had ever been erected in New England for the education of girls. Picturesque on the summit of the hill, its many-windowed facade, glowing in the light of the setting sun, was a sightly object to the good citizens of Boston returning from their afternoon drive in the suburbs. Rumors swirled around Boston and Charlestown about the strange rituals and terrible abuse suffered behind the walls of this grand campus. Building on the inherent biases of Yankee Bostonians, people began to murmur that the nuns were held captive as forced labor, that children were terribly abused and baptized into the Catholic Church against their will and the desires of their parents. And always, in the background, there was a subtle implication of lesbian sexual abuse. A woman named Elizabeth Harrison was the spark that lit the powder keg in our story. She was a music teacher and a 13-year veteran of the Ursuline Order, practicing under the religious name Sister Mary John. On the night of July 28, 1834, she left the convent and visited a local family. Some sources say it was the family of a student, 
while others say she surprised a family in a house chosen at random. She was out of sorts, bedraggled, and possibly incoherent. Maybe it was a crisis of faith, and maybe it was a bit of a breakdown brought on by the workload of a young teacher. Either way, the next morning, a bishop and the mother superior arrived and convinced her to return to the convent, explaining away her condition as a brain fever. Anti-Catholic activists had a field day with the story, saying that she was being held against her will and tortured at the convent. As the story spread through the surrounding community, it seems to have gotten jumbled together with the fantastical tales of abuse told by another young woman a few years earlier. So the community quickly became convinced that the convent was a depraved place, holding children and women captive and subject to terrible abuse. Less than two weeks later, Placards appeared all over Boston on Sunday morning, August 10th, saying, To the selectmen of Charlestown, gentlemen, it is currently reported that a mysterious affair has lately happened at the nunnery in Charlestown. Now it is your duty, gentlemen, to have this affair investigated immediately. If not, the truckmen of Boston will demolish the nunnery Thursday night, August 14th. Taking the warning to heart, a delegation from the Charlestown Selectmen went to the convent to investigate on August 11th. They were admitted by the Mother Superior, and they interviewed Sister Mary John. She testified that she was free to leave at any time, but happy where she was. The committee found no evidence of torture, white slavery, or sexual abuse, and left satisfied. The Selectmen planned to write an editorial for the next day's paper, but in the meantime, a mob was forming around the convent that night. A crowd of dozens of agitators gathered outside the gates, lighting bonfires, and shouting angrily for the imprisoned nuns to be released. As the crowd grew angry and noisy, they were joined by hundreds more, community members and curious passers-by. Nuns came to the windows to proclaim that they didn't need rescue, but the protesters paid them no mind. At one point, the Mother Superior seems to have really stirred up the crowd by shouting angrily, the bishop has 20,000 of the vilest Irishmen at his command, and you may read your riot act till your throats are sore, but you'll not quell them. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. The rioters broke down the gates, charged up the hill, and kicked in the doors and windows of the convent building. As the nuns and their students fled out a back door and hid in the surrounding gardens and orchards, the rioters began trashing the building, setting fires, desecrating the altar, and even breaking open tombs. A man named John Bazell, who was one of the ringleaders, later testified, The first thing that was done after getting in was to throw the pianos, of which nine were found, out of the windows. The mob crowded in in such numbers that it was with great difficulty that I got upstairs to the chapel, which was located on the second floor. When I finally succeeded in forcing my way into the chapel, I found a fire about the size of a bushel basket blazing merrily in the middle of the floor. It was made of paper, old books, and such other inflammable stuff as they could lay their hands on, and soon spread in all directions. When the main building was enveloped in flames, we went to look for the cookhouse and ice house, which were separate buildings, and set them on fire. At a little distance from the main building stood what was called the Bishop's Lodge, where he had a library, and where he used to keep his robes, and etc. After the ice house was fired, I started for this lodge and was the first to get in. I picked up a heavy desk and was giving it a swing to heave it out of the window when the mob arrived and, not knowing I was within, smashed the glass. The broken pieces were thrown violently into my face, cutting many bad gashes, from which the blood flowed freely. 
However, I wipe my face, and getting out the bishop's robe, put it on in a spirit of deviltry. The others stripped it off my back, and winding the remnants around poles, used them as torches, lighting them at the main building and firing the lodge with them. The farmhouse and barn were burned next, after which the tomb was visited to see if the body of the music teacher Mary St. John was there. The door of the tomb was broken open, and within was the body of a young girl who had evidently been dead but a day or two at most, and whom I religiously believe to this day to have been Mary St. John, although I had no positive proof of her identity. This finished the events on the hill, and after watching the flames for a while, the immense mob slowly dispersed. We'll have a link to the transcript of Bazell's trial before the Mass SJC in the show notes for this week's episode. As the fires set by Bazell and his friends swept through the campus, local fire departments arrived on the scene, but did nothing to fight the blaze. Were they sympathetic to the rioters? Did some of the Yankee firefighters even join the melee? Or were they simply afraid that they'd be hurt, either deliberately by angry rioters or, accidentally, by the flying glass shards, furniture, and incendiaries being thrown from the building? Either way, the next morning the convent campus lay in ruins. While the mayor of Boston called a town meeting at Faneuil Hall to discuss a response, and Bishop Finwick called a meeting of the Catholic citizens to warn them against any retaliation, a mob of thousands paraded through the streets of Boston. They tried to get to Faneuil Hall, then they tried to pull down the Catholic Church in Boston. After being thwarted both times by armed militia, the frustrated mob returned to the smoldering ruins of the Ursuline Convent, on the night of August 12th, and they rampaged through them again, burning fences, fruit trees, and anything else they could get their hands on. A third night of violence was only prevented by posting the militia within Boston and raising the drawbridge that connected Boston and Charlestown. In the days and weeks after the riot, everyone in the community knew who had been involved. It's not as if anyone was wearing masks, and it's not as if there was any reason to hide your involvement. In the end, 13 men were arrested and eight of them were charged with arson and burglary, both of which were punishable by death in 1834. Among the eight was John Bazell, who we quoted above giving self-incriminating testimony. Despite their own statements, despite eyewitness testimony, despite all of the evidence against them, all but one of the defendants was acquitted. The court at times questioned whether the sworn testimony of a Catholic could be trusted, saying that their oaths held less weight. Some of the judges went as far as allowing the defense to turn the trials into attacks on the Catholic Church itself, and almost all of the juries were packed with Yankees who were predisposed to disdain Catholicism. Sister Mary John testified against Bazell. In fact, she remains in the Ursuline Convent Order for the rest of her life, so apparently she wasn't being held against her will at all. And after the riot in Boston, she transferred to the convent in Quebec where she lived out her days. It would seem that the truth was irrelevant. Despite her efforts, Bazell was found not guilty, receiving thunders of applause by the audience in the courtroom, then the congratulations of thousands of his overjoyed fellow citizens on the streets outside. Only one person was convicted of any crime resulting from the riot. 16-year-old Martin Massey was convicted of arson for burning the bishop's books and given a life sentence. The governor pardoned him before he had served a day. You'd think that Massachusetts would have learned a lesson in religious tolerance from this embarrassment, but our history of anti-Catholic bias was far from over. 
After the pace of Irish immigration increased in 1845, an ugly nativist political party called the Know-Nothings was formed. It campaigned on a platform of opposing immigration and trying to minimize Catholic influence on American culture. This is another part of the story that also sounds very familiar. Also, the irony of being called the Know-Nothings Party. This wasn't even the last time that Protestant Yankees and Irish Catholics clashed violently in the streets of Boston. The 1837 Broad Street Riot was largely a sectarian clash, sparked after Yankee firefighters attacked an Irish Catholic funeral procession. And the 1863 draft riots in the North End began when Irish Americans believed they were being unfairly singled out for the draft and ended with Yankee militiamen firing a cannon at a crowd of civilians killing several people, including a 12-year-old boy. You can bet that we'll examine both those riots in more detail in future episodes. Even the Back Bay Project held the seeds of anti-Catholicism. The city decided to fill in the salt marsh in the Back Bay to create a grand new neighborhood, in part because so many Irish Americans were making their homes in older Boston neighborhoods. And while the city gave Protestant churches prime pieces of real estate for free, only St. Cecilia managed to get a Catholic foot in the back bay door. It was on the very fringe of the neighborhood and only allowed to exist so that the Irish domestic servants in the new neighborhood wouldn't have to be absent for too long to go to Mass. The hulking ruins of the Ursuline convent itself remained in view for decades. The top of Mount Benedict had a great view of Boston, and it became a popular picnic spot. Do you imagine how tasteless it would be to have a picnic in the shadow of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham? Yet, Bostonians seem to have no qualms about doing the same in Charlestown. Only in 1875, when the Boston Diocese was building the new Cathedral of the Holy Cross, were the ruins finally removed. The remaining bricks and stones were incorporated into the new church in the South End, bringing some sense of closure to Boston's Catholic community. Since then, it's helped to bring a sense of closure to all of Boston, as the site chosen for President Obama's moving speech following the 2013 marathon bombing. And that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about the trial and execution of Sacco and Vanzetti, the Tong Wars and the Great Chinatown Raid, or the Ursuline Convent Riot, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 086. We'll have notes about each of the stories we covered this week with original sources, pictures, maps, and more. And, of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Don't forget that History Camp, coming up on Saturday, July 7th, is your chance to hang out with both Nikki and me. History Camp's a great way to get together with fellow history nerds and spend a day learning new aspects of history from the experts in the field. And the best part is that you don't have to be a professor, a professional historian, or have any special credentials or affiliation. Anyone's welcome but you better hurry up and register. Nikki and I will be there to learn and network, and I'll be speaking as part of a podcasting panel that features some of the biggest names in history podcasting. Besides me, the panel's Mick Sullivan from The Past and the Curious, Edward O'Donnell of In the Past Lane, Liz Covart, host of Ben Franklin's World, and the world-famous Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Nikki and I will have Hub History stickers and other goodies for any fans we meet, and there's always time to get to know one another between sessions. In addition, I'll be leading a very special tour of the Back Bay focused on the process of constructing a fancy neighborhood out of a stagnant salt marsh on the Sunday after history camp. 
You can get the details, read about the other great sessions that'll be offered, and register to attend at historycamp.org slash Boston. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a special 4th of July episode. (laughs) 